0: Today's scripture reading comes from Haggai chapters 1 and 2. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house? Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Who was left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? But the word of our God endures forever.
1: Well, good morning. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and uh, I want to welcome you again to our Sunday morning worship service. It is so good uh, to worship with you this morning. We're, we've been going through a sermon series uh, called "Winning Our, Winning Your Thought Wars," and the feedback we've gotten so far from the messages has been really encouraging. We've had so many people reach out to us and and say, man, I really needed to hear that message. That's exactly what I'm struggling with. And we've even had people reach out and say, you know what, I, I had no idea that I was struggling with beauty or with anxiety, but I came to see that I actually need help in these areas. And what we've said throughout this series is that our thoughts often enslave us. But what the Bible tells us to do is to take our thoughts captive. Take our thoughts captive. My, two of my kids, they just started taking Brazilian jujitsu classes, and a lot of the time it just looks like they're rolling around on the mat. My oldest son, Andy, he's, I think he's like twice the size of his younger brother, Caleb. And when they grapple now, he just kind of lays on top of Caleb and puts all his weight on him. And then Caleb, he can't do anything. He's just laying there struggling and unable to get out. But the goal, the goal of it is for him to learn how to manipulate his opponent to take control so that even if his opponent is twice his size, he'll be able to take him captive This series that we're doing now is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu with our thoughts. Our thoughts overwhelm us and we often just lie there struggling but unable to do anything but submit. And what we need to learn to do is to intentionally and strategically take our thoughts captive. And today, I want to talk about a thought war that we all struggle with, whether or not you're a Christian, whether you've gone to church your whole life, or today is the first time you've ever stepped foot in church. No matter who you are, no matter what you're like, one of your fundamental struggles is this question, is God good? Good. Is God good? Is he worth following? And I know that this is a fundamental struggle because this was the core of the very first temptation and sin. The serpent comes to the woman in Genesis 3, and he doesn't challenge the existence of God. He doesn't say, You really believe that God is real? You believe that he created the world in six days? What about the dinosaurs? The serpent, he doesn't question the existence of God, but he makes the woman doubt the goodness of God. Did God really say you can't do that? Really? He said that? And rather than trusting in God's goodness, she looks for herself She saw that the tree was good for fruit. She took it, ate it, gave some to her husband who also took and ate. And what she was thinking was, God isn't good. He's not worth following. There's a better life for me apart from God's will. And this is something that we all struggle with every day of our lives. Even this morning, I know that there is some, or even many of you, who struggled even to make it here. Is it worth it? Is it worth giving up more sleep or a day off from work to myself? Is God worth it? Is he worth my time, my money, the social cost that comes with being a Christian today? Is he worth risking relationships, a promotion? Denying myself certain pleasures or comforts. Is there a better life for me apart from him? This is a fundamental struggle that we are constantly submitting to. And this is the fundamental struggle that our passage today addresses. Our passage is from Uh, The book of Haggai, which is all the way at the very end of the Old Testament. It's the third to last book of the Old Testament. And it's written to a particular group of Jewish people. Let me give you a quick uh, 10-second refresher of the story of the Old Testament before we dive into the passage. So in the Old Testament, and even for many of the Jews today, their core identity, their fundamental identity was being God's chosen people. God called Abraham, the very first Israelite, and had a covenant relationship with him. And at the heart of the covenant was that God would give Abraham both descendants and a promised land. The promised land, the borders of which encompass modern day Palestine. The promised land was a very important part of Old Testament Israel's identity. And here's the pattern that we see repeated throughout the Old Testament. The Israelites, they cannot stay faithful to God's law. They're constantly going astray. They're they're choosing to pursue the gods of other nations. And again and again, they keep wandering off into idolatry. So throughout the Old Testament, God gives Israel priests to kind of shepherd the people spiritually. But there's corruption. There's abuse of power in the priesthood. Israel asked God for a king, so God establishes a monarchy to govern and to protect his people. But most of the kings are corrupt, and they abuse their power. God sends prophet after prophet to warn, to rebuke, to encourage the Israelites to repent of their sin, and the people don't listen. So then God sends other nations to threaten and harass Israel so that they'll turn back to God for rescue. They still don't listen. God is faithful to Israel, but Israel is not faithful to God. So finally, God removes his people forcibly from the promised land. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel falls to the Assyrians and then finally in 586 BC, Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians. The temple is destroyed, the people are carried off into captivity and it's unclear exactly how many people were deported to Babylon, but historians, scholars, and archaeologists estimate that it could be anywhere from hundreds of thousands of people to even several million people who are taken away. And it seems at this point in the story that God has finally given up on his people. He's given up on the covenant he made with them. But God is faithful. And he brings his people back. The Babylonian Empire, it falls to the Persian Empire. And 50 years after the fall of Jerusalem, King Cyrus issues a decree allowing the Israelites to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that's been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And the people, they're led by a man named Zerubbabel, who was a descendant of King David, and therefore next in line to be king. And also with them is a man named Joshua, the high priest, who's a descendant of Aaron, the very first high priest. And all in all, a total of about 50,000 people returned to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild the temple. So do the math. Hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people, were taken away to Babylon And 50 years later, they're allowed to return. Only 50,000 people opt to go back to the promised land and Jerusalem. This means that a majority of the Jews who were taken to Babylon and the children that they raised there did not want to retain their Jewish identity as the people of God and the land that was their inheritance. They had assimilated into the larger Babylonian culture. A culture, a world that that did not know or care about God. Was God worth it to them? The answer for them, it was a clear no. No. Babylon was the greatest empire that the world had ever seen. And even when it falls to the Persian Empire, they're still in the wealthiest place on earth at the time. And the Israelites, they enjoyed many comforts in their new home. Sure, there was some discrimination and some persecution, but we know that Israelites were treated relatively well. People like Daniel were even able to rise to the very highest places of government and society. So for most of the Jews, the cost-benefit analysis for following God and returning to Jerusalem, it was really easy math. No thanks. Life apart from following God is better than the life that God provides. And I think that we're seeing a similar phenomenon in the Western world today. Christianity is no longer the dominant worldview. The cultural influence of Christianity is declining. According to a recent report by the Pew Research Center and the General Social Survey, in the early 90s, about 90% of people in the US identified as Christian. 90%. In 2020, that number has declined to 64% of the population. Meanwhile, the percentage of people who are not affiliated with any religion has grown from 16% in 2007 to now 30% in 2020. The trend in our country, and for the most part the Western world, is a decline of Christianity as a social influence and institution and an increase in secularism and atheism. And I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing, right? What the research also shows is that a lot of this decline is not from those who prioritize their faith, but it's from kind of the squishy middle of people who are more nominal believers. But either way, what's true is that secularism is quickly becoming a dominant worldview in our country and in the West, That means that Christians will find it harder and harder to be accepted and affirmed. The social cost involved with being a Christian will continue to climb. We're not just seeing an economic inflation in our country, but really a spiritual one as well. But you know what? 50,000 people do go back. For these people, they've weighed the question, is God worth it? And they've said yes. They've committed to following him. And I imagine that this could not have been an easy decision for a lot of them. For for so many of them, they were leaving their friends and family behind. They were leaving the financial security of Babylon. They were immigrating to a land that many of them had never even seen. They come back to Jerusalem with the purpose of rebuilding their lives and most importantly, rebuilding the temple of God which had been destroyed. They return to Jerusalem. They begin to rebuild the foundation of the temple and then they stop. They stop. And the prophet Haggai, he's sent to encourage the people to resume building the temple of God. That's what Haggai is all about. He's calling the people to remember their identity as the people of God. He's reminding them that God is worth it. Look at verse 4. Here's what Haggai says. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins. Haggai points out that the people are living in paneled houses. This was wood paneling that was decorative. Object lesson right here. It was a sign of luxury, not necessity. They start off building the temple, God's house, and they stop in order to build and enjoy their own paneled houses. Instead of staying on mission, their hearts keep going back to the comforts and the wealth of Babylon while they had initially committed to returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, they soon collectively reach a point where building their own homes and their own lives is more important and worthwhile to them than what God has called them to do. And I think that's so descriptive of many of us here today. Many of us have made the decision to follow Jesus. We've been baptized. We're committed to the church. But how often do we prioritize building up our own lives, our own careers, our homes, our comforts, our kingdoms, rather than living for God's will and God's kingdom? How often? Do we struggle with whether walking with God faithfully is actually worth it? You know, I I think conceptually we all think, yes, it's worth it. But practically in our lives, is our time, is our energy, is our money better spent in building our own paneled houses? Here's a quote from John Piper in Don't Waste Your Life. He says this, I am wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call earth home. Before you know it, I'm calling luxuries needs and using my money just the way unbelievers do. I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I start dreaming about the triumphs. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do, not what God can do. It's a terrible sickness, and I thank God for those who have forced me again and again toward a wartime mindset. Is God worth it? Or is there more for me somewhere else? The problem, if you choose to prioritize your own kingdom, is ultimately that you will never be satisfied. We were created to glorify and enjoy God and be in relationship with Him. When we choose against that purpose, we find ourselves in this endless search for satisfaction, What are the consequences of sin? What are the consequences of choosing against God? Look at verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes there is no satisfaction. No matter what they do, no matter how much they earn, it's never enough. It reminds me of that famous quote from John Rockefeller who was the richest man in America. He was asked at the height of his wealth, how much money is enough money for you? And his answer, just a little bit more. Apart from God, The search for happiness, fulfillment, security, never ends. We've all experienced this, haven't we? When something we hope for, something we wait for, something we fight for, we finally get it, and we're still not happy. We get that job, that promotion, that new title, that nice apartment, After so many first dates, you finally find that person to be in a relationship with. But it's not enough. We've sown much, but harvested little. We eat, we never have enough. We drink, we never have our fill. We clothe ourselves, it's still cold. Our paneled houses don't deliver. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3. For many of of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ." In these verses, Paul compares the Christian to the non-Christian. He says that those who are apart from Christ have as their end destruction. And their God is their belly. And that means they are slaves who must serve their appetites. Their home is in the here and now, but for those who are in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. Our home is not This world, it is somewhere else. And I I love that the name of our church is exilic because I need to be reminded. I need to be reminded every week that I am living for something more than this world can deliver. Because my inclination is to build my home here, to live in that paneled house that will make me happy. But I need to be reminded that in Christ... I actually have something so much better. I need to be reminded cuz I keep forgetting. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. It works. The people are reminded. They get back to work. They resume building the temple. They remember who they are the people of God. But just one month after they begin working again, God has to send Haggai back because they need more encouragement. They start to lose the thought wars. They start to feel that temptation that God isn't worth it. Life is better apart from him. Here's what Haggai says to them when he returns in chapter 2. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Here, God compares the old temple of Solomon to this new temple. The first temple was built at the height of Solomon's reign. This was when Israel was the richest nation on earth. The temple was Solomon's crowning achievement, his legacy. He marshaled every resource of the kingdom, poured out his enormous wealth into building the temple. And when the temple was dedicated, imagine the fanfare. Now, cut to the new temple—a reduced nation of fifty thousand, with far more limited resources, trying to rebuild this temple. And God says, "Is it not as nothing in your eyes?" You know, it's—it's it's funny. In Ezra three, um, they finally finish building the foundation of the temple. And there's this dedication service. And all of the younger people are so excited. They're like, we did it. Yeah. Look at what we accomplished. Look at this foundation. But the older people, there were people there who remembered the former temple. They weep. They weep out loud because this new temple looks so pathetic compared to the old one. How often do we struggle with this? Going to church, reading the Bible, praying, serving, giving. We struggle with doing these things consistently because we don't think it's worth our time. Last week we heard a a sermon on on living hurried lives. We fill our lives and our minds with things with things that we think are more important, more valuable than living for God. And God says here, I know, I know, I get it. I know it seems like nothing. I know it seems so unimpressive. I know it doesn't seem like it's worth it. It seems so small and insignificant, but God's not done. Verse 4, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, declares the Lord of hosts. God says a few things here. First he says in verse 4, I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. You have me, the Lord Almighty. You are my covenant people. You have my spirit in you. The silver, the gold, all mine. I am the great and glorious God and I am with you. What good are all the goods of this world if God is not with us? What good are our paneled houses and curated lives and Instagram likes if we do not have God? God is with us. God says, know who I am. But secondly, God says this, know what I am doing. God says, although this second temple, it doesn't look like much, the glory of this second temple will be greater than the glory of the first. You know, when Solomon finishes building the temple, the first temple, there's this crazy mystical spiritual event where a cloud of God's glory comes and it fills the temple so that the priests, they could not stand to minister there because of the cloud. It was this powerful, um, actually terrifying experience. But this never happens with the second temple. So how can the glory of the second temple be greater than the glory of the first temple? Well, About 600 years after this temple finally gets done, Jesus walks into it. And he tells the Jews there, he said, destroy this temple and I will build it. I will raise it up in three days. What Jesus is saying is, this temple is actually my body. I am the temple. You know, in the book of Haggai, you have a prophet who speaks to like two people. You have a king, Zerubbabel, with with a scattered, incomplete kingdom. You have a priest, Joshua, with this unfinished temple. It looks like nothing. But it's all the way at the end of the Old Testament because it's pointing us forward to Jesus the Messiah, because in Jesus, you have a prophet who is himself the Word of God. In Jesus, you have a high priest who is himself, the temple of God, who dies upon the cross, to offer himself as a sacrifice, to reconcile us to God. And in Jesus, you have a king with a kingdom. That will know no end. You know what I love in verse 2? God refers to the Israelites as these people. These people. He doesn't say my people. Because sin, it alienates us from God. But listen to what God says in this next chapter. Verse 4. Work because I am with you. A A change has taken place. The Israelites, they go from these people to I am with you because of Jesus, our prophet, our priest, our king. We are not these people, we are God's people. So, how do we win this thought war? How do we take our thoughts captive? The Brazilian jiu jitsu move here is to adjust our perspective. Because on the surface, living for God seems so ordinary. It seems so unexciting, unappealing. It seems like all sacrifice and no reward. But look beyond that to the incomparable glory, beauty, and power in the gospel. Is it worth it? Yes. Is God good? Yes. I want to close just by sharing about one thing that makes God so good for me. You know, deep down, I know that I'm not okay. I I know that I'm not good. I'm selfish. I'm full of pride. I'm greedy. My heart just wants more and more and more. I complain when I don't get what I want. I get angry and bitter when things don't go my way. I've I've known this about myself forever. And you know what? Growing up in the church, I always envisioned God as this stern parent whose approval I could never quite earn. Christianity for me, it was just things I had to do and things I couldn't do. And I, I never felt like I was good enough. I was always letting God down. I was always disappointing him. In my mind, I could hear God saying to me, I died for you, I forgave you, and you can't even pray? You can't even get over this sin that you keep committing again and again and again? God, I knew he was good, but I didn't think he was good for me. So very often I just I wanted to get as far away from God as possible. I I didn't want to come to God. I didn't want to live for God. I wanted to live for myself. But in college, I think I discovered grace in a way that I I never I had never understood. I, I read a book called What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. And I don't remember anything that I read but this one line just buried itself in my heart and it changed everything. He said this, he says, grace means that God can't love you anymore and God can't love you any less. I'd never heard that before. That blew me away. That no matter what I do right now, I can't earn any more of God's love because he already loves me the maximum amount now. Now. And no matter how bad I mess up, he will never love me any less. God's love for me, it's not tied at all to my performance. But it's based entirely on someone else's performance. The performance of Jesus. And because of Jesus, God never has a frown for me. I'd always envisioned God with a frown when he looked at my life. But in Jesus, God only has a loving smile. He's a good, good father. An undeserving sinner like me can be adopted and loved as a beautiful child of God, and that can never change. I belong to him. And in him, all of the eternal riches of Christ are mine forever. I can't think of anything better than that. Is he worth it? A thousand times yes. And I hope he's worth it for you too. Let's pray. God, you are good. Remind us of that goodness. Especially when we forget it. When we lose sight of it. When our eyes wander elsewhere. Remind us that you are worth it and help our hearts to say to you, to whom else will we go? Thank you for loving us. Help us to love you and live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name.